she had taken me to a hill high above the Bosphorus Sea. It was morning, and we had ascended into an atmosphere of diffused gold. There was a bush in bloom. Its name was the colour purple, and I wondered if the colour had given its name to the bush, or if the bush itself had invented the colour, discovered it for all the world. I already knew that I would never know. My companion was a woman who shared her name with an animal that no longer exists. She had learned English from films as a teenager. Gesturing at the sea, she asked, Do you know where this water came from? And that was the first of a series of questions I could never answer. I could certainly say that the strait before us stretched between the generous Mediterranean and the Black Sea, bleak and oxygen-depleted. That two currents ran separate and contrary to one another underneath those glittering waves. I could say that at this latitude, subtropical conditions must prompt a metre of precipitation each year, all of it draining into the waterway before us. But I knew that these answers were insufficient. That they didn't solve anything. The question, after all, had asked for something else. Something more. Where does this water come from? Some months earlier I had watched her sleep. Her wide eyes firmly shut under the heavy rims of her eyelids. Her head misted with dreams. We had been on the deck of a ship. She had worn a ring of turquoise. Its stone had innumerable cracks in it. And to me it looked like a globe that mapped out the continents of another planet. A cusp of sun appeared at the aft of the ship. She woke suddenly. Then where are you going, she asked. And I didn't know if she was asking about my travels here, on this sea, scattered equally with islands and histories, or there, across that tiny, imaginary world that sat in a bronze band around her finger. Before that, I had arrived in Istanbul for the first time. I came in at dawn, and it was as if I'd slipped through a crack into someone else's memory. My first order of business was to find my accommodation, which was unfortunately located on a street that required the use of every vowel and consonant that exists in Turkish, but not in my own language. A hush ka hush of noises that I breathed out with no accuracy whatsoever. 
I asked for directions from a woman in a magenta dress who took me by the hand and led me down towards a market. Past a stack of watermelons the size of bulls' heads and fish laid out like a thousand miniature half-moons. In the doorway of a store, a fat man seemed to shrink under the remonstrations of his wife. I sat on a small wicker stool and drank tea the colour of rust. As a broken radio strained to play for us a song of keen lamentation, a dirge sung by a woman who seemed to say, I am crippled by loss but still stupefied by desire. The woman in the magenta dress was gone, but I would not have been surprised to discover that she was the singer of this maudlin melody as if upon parting ways with me she'd climbed into the radio to pour out her passions on the whole marketplace. That night I entered a public square which was seared by the winds of Anatolia. A large crowd had gathered, but for what purpose I could not tell. In a corner of the square there was an old crone who held up shreds of paper hung them up on strings, traded them with passers-by. She hollowed out a repetitive mantra into the square. And I asked a stranger what she was selling, what the sing-song was. I was informed that the scraps of paper were a sort of lottery ticket, and that her poem was this. Come, get your chance, get your chance at a new life. Come, get your new, get your new, get your new life. Come, get your chance, get your chance at a new life. Come, get your new, get your new, get your new life. Just then a man walked through, pushing a cart of junk bric-a-brac. He bought a ticket and wheeled on. I pictured him wheeling into a new life, as if up a track that might seal or cobble itself for his convenience. A group of stagehands would go about changing the set behind him. He had a scruffy and downtrodden look about him and his cart was full of the refuse and debris of those who could move on more quickly than him. The offcasts of those who inhabited an echelon above him. He hadn't invented his own personal life. It too seemed to be a bricolage of world history. I looked around me. Roads led every which way out of the square we were in. I watched the trader roll off in one direction, and then I took another.
down in the Bosphorus Sea, there were dolphins racing. We had taken the minibus along the western shoreline and watched them cut their arcs through the water. My friend turned to me and said, I'm the only one to see the dolphins. I'm the only one looking out the window. She told me that a taxi driver had said that it would be best if they cemented up the Bosphorus, fusing Istanbul's east and west with a flat grey slab. His reason was that it would solve the traffic problems. For my own part, I had heard stories that vehicles driving too fast would not infrequently veer off the road and go plunging into the sea. What might you find down there? To me it wasn't inconceivable that a whole world existed between the banks of the strait. Something hidden in the gulf between the city's two domains. Safely up on the hill we ate a village breakfast with flatbread and rose jam and boiled eggs and sesame cakes and rosemary preserve, fresh salads and herbs that we ate by the handful, tomato and cucumber, dill and mint. Above us flew a flock of storks. They moved easily through the air, though it seemed to me a miracle that their hefty weight could balance so comfortably up there. Do you know what those birds mean to you? My friend asked. She told me that when a person sees the storks, it means that they too are going to go on a journey. The sign is final once done. You're going on a trip? She smiled at me. And me too. She had already confessed that she'd wanted to leave for a long time. It seemed to her that the political situation was closing in, making it impossible for her to live the life she wanted to. She felt locked out of her own country's fate, and that the possibility of liberty was quickly draining away, as if downstream, out the strait, running off elsewhere, So she was pleased to see the storks, and she felt that this meant that soon she would get the visa she'd been hoping for, for a country in Europe, or for Canada, for Australia. We were watching those storks for a long while. They didn't seem to be going anywhere in particular. They weren't on some hard and fast itinerary. With her eyes still fixed on these birds, my friend asked quietly, What power? What feeling forces them, hey? What are they aiming at? What figures do their fortune tellers see? What are the numbers in their dreams?
The neighbourhood in which I had stayed when I first got to Istanbul was on the eastern shore, where the ground begins to expand into the enormous hinterland of Asia, a continent of great plains and great mountains. Sometimes I believed I could feel its presence. One afternoon at the tea stall, a whiskery old gentleman told me that the Turkic peoples had once been nomads, raiders who had demanded the territory of the steppes in a sequence of dominations that spread south and west. While they had first cut the runes of their language in the forests of eastern Russia, near Lake Baikal, now they left their words scattered like coins all throughout Central Asia, and to the west as well from their later incursions into Europe. They had once lived in patterned tents, cooked in cavernous cauldrons, migrated across the earth underneath a canvas of stars. The old man told me that they'd kept meat with spices in their gaiters to cure it as they rode their long dusty days racing the sun. And among their totems were the peregrine falcon and the hawk. And little wonder, they lived under the world's broadest skies and they too swooped in a precipitous motion, cutting through the universe like a scythe. The old man copied out a poem for me in Turkish. A few days later I found a translator, perhaps not the best man for the job, given that he was a little hyperactive and also that he was from Lebanon. But nevertheless he phrased it into English for me. Yes, yes, he said. It trots from furthest Asia, its big neck stretching to Mediterranean. Our country is a horse. I thought that, thus compressed, this short, fabulous verse might have accounted for the kinds of impulses and instincts that my friend had in her head. She who bore the name of a roaming, grazing animal, once wild and free, Maybe her mind reverberated with the echoes of those ancestors who could scream into vast expanses and not be heard, who sprawled across a continent, mustering its juddering movement towards a dream destination. The runes of those nomads had in time been revised into the scrawl of the Arabic script, and then a century ago it was decided that the Turkish language would be written in the strange hieroglyphics of the Romans. And it was these that the public scribes nowadays thumped into paper at the behest of their customers, hired letter writers who helped mediate with estranged relatives or lovers or potential employers or university admissions officers in other lands. In the market I got one of these writers to compose for me a short document of proverbs I'd collected from both sides of the Bosphorus. And then I walked around whispering them to myself. Dreams are round. Love is full like a plum too. The language I was told has 40 tenses. Or was it 60 or 80? It didn't matter. There may as well be a thousand. So many of them have a subjunctive bent, expressing suspicions and emotions, desires and dreams, gossip and guesswork. I supposed that this must be the grammar of dreamers, 
of those who foresee other ways to be but cannot affect these purely through foreknowledge. It struck me that most of these letter writers were not writing to some contemporary correspondent, but to some past equivalent, some future eventuality. Likewise, each item of merchandise I found in the nearby bazaar seemed to be representing an intricate life that had only the smallest amount of existence in the here and now. I guess it was in this city that I began to discern that we all live only partly in the present moment and mostly elsewhere. My friend had found a different writer to help her put together an application form for yet another visa. I signed it as a witness. One of my proverbs had read, Rise and fall with the tide often enough and you will get seasick. The Bosphorus will leave you with bruises. That evening my friend took me on the ferry across the strait to the east, to a village where timber mansions teetered and threatened to topple onto us as we traipsed the empty streets. This for centuries had been a forest of poplars, its shadows dappling a mosaic of gardens and orchards where butterflies thronged the flowering bushes. The chestnuts and the pears were once famous. The vintners prayed for blessed summers that would provoke the most golden wines. Beneath the crumbling stone of its antiquated fortress, I could feel the favourable old winds like phantoms. Soothing breezes that sailors had spoken of in the past, charted into their own personal periplus. The rays of the setting sun were like fine lances, the minarets silhouetted like swords against the sky. She murmured a disyllabic word in her language, but I, half hearing it and hardly having any Turkish vocabulary, couldn't tell whether she had said melancholy or peace. Walking through the streets, she showed me one of the wonky wooden abodes which she used to visit, previously the home of a distant relative. Now the only thing to sleep here is my childhood, she said. 
and it was as if this was a grave for her youthfulness. A tall wooden tomb for innocent dreams. That this version of herself had been buried like so much else under the leaf litter of the forests that once were. Now investors were buying up all the old mansions. To knock them down. And put up rentals and holiday apartments in their place. We went for a beer at a restaurant on the shore. As the stars came out over that village, my friend was filled with regret. She told me that her ancestors used to know the heavens better than anyone in the world. Had I come in the 16th century, I would have no doubt sought an interview with a Turkish pirate who was said to be the best cartographer on the planet in his day. He could account for islands of women and men who dove into colourful seas like seals and to the enormity of a new continent to the far west, which bulged from the slender waist of an isthmus like lava towards both poles. Then the Ottoman Empire had sent forth skilled explorers, wanderers who could traverse any country, and who brought back new knowledge that expanded the minds of their people. But after an earthquake, the religious leaders had convinced the emperor that God was punishing them for their arrogant efforts to educate themselves too much, as if faith was a rival of knowledge, as if heaven despised the earth. She had seen the pirates' maps in the city museum. They were very large and inviting, she said. But so far I had to stay in my own little world square. If there is a God, it should want us to be wider than this. To drink oceans in and eat the land. To climb on air like travelling birds. In the end, God made it all. Didn't it? That night on the last ferry back to the west... She spread her arms out like she might fly. And I woke in her apartment to the sounds of wings clapping. But it was just the pigeons. Their percussion accompanying the lazy bells clanging around the necks of wandering cows. There were stockkeepers out there, encroaching on the suburbs as if they hadn't noticed that Istanbul had been built over their old tracks. And they let out strange cries, which weren't in Turkish, but in some other language drawn from eons of tradition. We guessed at the meanings of their calls, agreeing finally that they weren't just shouting, Come on, cows, get a move on. Life's short. No. They were saying, go slow. Take your time here. Enjoy whatever few tufts of grass you find. Enjoy it all while it lasts. Then there was a nasal voice, 
singing, summoning, smothering. A call that was also not in Turkish, to announce the hour of another prayer, the song ringing out from a mosque's crackly loudspeaker. And believers retrieved their compasses like they were Ottoman explorers and looked towards a foreign desert. And believers retrieved their compasses like they were Ottoman explorers and looked towards a foreign desert as if for an horizon or for hope. I thought briefly how the cartographer might have pointed to other countries across the seas or used instead of a compass an orrery and sung hymns to the stars. And we stood motionless as the muezzin sang, Come, get your chance, get your chance at a new life. When it was all done, she told me that her soul felt squeezed. And that sounded devastated, but she just yawned and explained that this was a way of saying that she was bored. So this was simply tedious, her present existence in Istanbul. And maybe every night left her more tired than she had been when she went to sleep. We were in need of another big breakfast. More tea, white cheese, sausage, pistachios, dried herbs in olive oil, molasses, whatever the old earth could give up to us. The soil in which her ancestors had kneeled, rustling up whatever energy the broken-down rocks would yield. I could only hope that it would be a catalyst for new thoughts in my friend's mind. A new poem, a verse or a prayer to call out to the easterly winds or those breezes that come fresh and cool from the Balkans. At the end of breakfast there was coffee, and she took my cup and turned it upside down. The mud at the bottom of the mug would slowly slide into shapes that told the future, so I could be forewarned what had happened next. When it was all ready, she explained that she saw a set of keys, a cup of silver, an arrow, a fish. I would find rest. I would be rich. I was getting married soon. There is a harbour, she said, with a beautiful woman standing next to it. I think that stands for home. I guess it probably would. Nothing sounds like home more than that does. But the truth was that when I left Istanbul, I was heading off in the wrong direction. For me, home was many months away. That harbour was a distant airport. And there was no one who would be so patient as to be waiting for me when I got there. I made a gesture to look into her mug, but she waved me off. I can tell you already, she said. 
you will see the stork. It was as if one had just started clattering its bill in the bottom of her cup. And the smile she gave was that of someone whose fortune has already been foretold. But she added a motto just in case I didn't get it. You see, I am Chancellor. 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 Have you ever thought about how you can understand an idea within a melody? I went to the dictionary, although I already knew what the word would mean. But it astounded me that she could describe herself this way. Despite how hard life in her country had become. She was superstitious for the most part, but there were no symbols that could unsettle what she believed about herself, so it didn't matter what the coffee grounds read. Just as it didn't matter how things seemed right now, chance was on her side. Chancellor. Chancellor. She was lucky. Luck was that undercurrent in the Bosphorus Strait, running secretly far below, pushing courageously and incongruously against that flow that bubbled and hissed nearer to the surface.
it was clear that my friend wanted a new life. But I was also sure that she wanted something of an old life too. One that happened many centuries before she was born. The freedom for which she yearned was that of the extinct animal after which she had been named. But I now had to second guess whether or not that animal had ever existed. It wasn't in the books I had read. And I wouldn't have been surprised to discover that she was descended from a mythical creature when all was said and done. When I returned to Istanbul quite some years later, the hill on which we had once perched for a breakfast of honey and herbs was gone. Bulldozed. Concreted over. Another forest erased. A grove of dreams destroyed. Now it's the foundation for another bridge built to span the Bosphorus Sea. And I had it as a backdrop to another passage across the strait. Back to the old village of wooden mansions. A journey that I repeated with an unsuppressed sensation of nostalgia. As far as I know, somewhere on the slopes opposite, just near the harbour where I'd caught the ferry, my friends still lived, watched films, listened to music, studied, swapped courses and degrees as if changing channels or switching the paths she might take to her inevitable future. But alas, the threads of our mistranslations had tangled over the years, and we had submitted to the distance between us. We acquiesced to fate agreed to keep a silence. I wondered, though, if she still wore that ring of cracked turquoise. Turquoise, the colour of the Turks. Bosphorus blue. The colour of lakes on the plateaus, oases that reflected the brilliant skies under which the nomads and herds ran for days on end. They drank this colour in. Their ideas were steeped in it. Squinting their eyes at the shimmering distance, they saw blue dance as well. It would be constantly clouded and occluded with dust, unsurprisingly since blue's the colour you can never quite get to. Therefore it is the colour of what we most hope for. She'd had it solidified and set into metal but it was disintegrating even when I'd met her. But these are symbols, not reality. That hill had been concreted over. Yet the Bosphorus had not. Dolphins gallivanted in it. On one bank further down the strait, there was a stork's nest perched on top of the sharp minaret of a mosque. I remembered those storks that soared with uncanny elegance all those years ago. I had indeed gone on many trips since, destined to that rhythm of departure and return. The storks and coffee cups had prophesied my travels, that was for sure. But the metaphors were late in fulfilling themselves for my friend who had never received her visa, who had never gotten anywhere.
and the terms by which she lived in that country were becoming increasingly restrictive. I'd watched from afar elections, referendums, terrorist attacks. More than once I wondered if it had ever happened at all. I thought of how I'd first met that woman as we lay down to sleep on a ship's deck, on a sea that looked like a slab of blue marmalade, something laid out for breakfast in a fable. And I considered that perhaps I had been dreaming of her dreaming, in a sort of sequence that went on to infinity, beyond even the horizon of the mapmakers, beyond promises sung in mosque and marketplace, beyond her ancestors' steps and skies. I had discovered that there was once a great mystic teacher who began all his parables with the prefatory shrug, Bir Varmish, Bir Yokmish. Once it was, and once it wasn't. And as the ferry chugged through the waves of the bruising Bosphorus Sea so long after those deeply felt mornings and nights, I supposed it mostly went like this. Like a sentence that goes through translation back and forth, what we end up with is often so far from the original words. Likewise, we put our memories through a mangle every time we think on them. But can't it be so that, sometimes, in this manner, something more truthful comes out? Or so it once was. And so it once wasn't.